Welcome to ASRS's Journal of Vitreoretinal Diseases Authors Forum. I'm your host, Dr. Timothy Murray, Editor-in-Chief of JVRD. On each episode of the JVRD Authors Forum, I will interview innovative retinal researchers on their studies featured only in JVRD and how these studies will impact our patients' care in our clinics. Tune in to hear directly from investigators about the clinical implications of the newest and highest quality research in the field of retina. On this episode, we'll be discussing the case report titled Valsalva Retinopathy Associated with COVID-19, Diagnosis and Surgical Management. I'm joined by Dr. Sean Adrian from Retina Consultants of Orange County in California. Welcome, Dr. Adrian. Oh, thanks for having me, Tim. So we're really looking at highlighting your manuscript. The, the beauty of the manuscript also was some of the imagery, and we'll try to include that. But can you give me some idea of how this patient presented to you and what you felt was unique? Yeah, certainly. So this was in June of 2021. So, you know, COVID had been going on for some time, but obviously we'd gotten patients vaccinated. We'd been vaccinated. So some of the concern had been winding down just a little bit. And this patient had presented to the emergency room and she had had decreased vision for the past day. And prior to that, she'd had severe nausea and vomiting, as well as, you know, emesis, she was vomiting and everything like that, as well as coughing. And she had a decline in vision. And then, of course, three days prior to that, she had tested positive for COVID-19, even though she'd had both, both of her shots as well as a booster as well. So she was fully vaccinated at that point. And, you know, emergency room wanted to know what we should do. And of course, um, always some concern with even bringing patients like that, even though we were all vaccinated and boosted as well. But of course, she had had a big decline in vision and we felt it was best to evaluate her. So we brought her into our clinic and that's when she presented to us. And we saw this pretty amazing uh, Valsalva retinopathy presentation associated with her COVID-19 diagnosis. So, Sean, when you brought her into the clinic, knowing that she was COVID positive, even with you and your staff vaccinated, did you do anything special in terms of how you handled her through through her visit? You know, I, I did make sure I was wearing an N95 mask as well as the staff. And we put an N95 mask on her and her husband as well. Um, other than that, uh, we didn't really do anything too, too, more, too much more aggressive than that, except to make sure that, you know, it was kind of more of an isolated part of the clinic. And we limited the interaction of the different staff that would go in and see her and everything like that. As far and imaging as well, we made sure that, you know, she would be the only one in the room and then give it a little time to air out and everything like that. It's it's interesting because I think that as a specialty, a subspecialty in particular, that we adapted fairly quickly across, you know, our our teams to manage patients either with known COVID or with presumptive potential COVID, even in the face of, of the vaccine therapy. So it sounds like you did that very, very nicely. And you were able to make an acute diagnosis for this woman based on your clinical evaluation. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And and got some good imaging too. We we didn't, you know, limit our imaging or anything like that. 
either. So that was that was nice. And when you saw her, you thought that the cause of vision loss was the hemorrhagic changes, or did you think there might have been something else involved besides the hemorrhages that you saw? You know, that, that diagnosis pretty quickly popped into my head just for the fact that, you know, given her fact that she was throwing up a lot and lots of coughing, um, I didn't really, you know, she did have a history of systemic hypertension, but she was young. She's 45 and everything like that. So I didn't have any, you know, of course, I asked her about her other medical history and nothing else popped up. So that diagnosis was first in mind and everything. And so you did nice imaging studies as as sort of baseline confirmatory. What did you think in terms of your initial management strategy? Yeah, you know, she came in and she was at Count Fingers. And of course, the hospitals in these cases don't want to operate anyway, unless if it's a big emergency. So, you know, usually they want you to wait 10 days anyway. And so I figured given the fact that her vision, while poor, she was kind of in this count fingers range. A lot of times these can go away on their own with observation, although uh, as we'll link to the pictures later, you can really see that, you know, she had had a lot of, you know, multi-layer hemorrhages in the sub-ILM and she had pre-retinal hemorrhages and intraretinal hemorrhages. So she had, she had a, a fair bit of pathology in that one eye. And interestingly enough, absolutely nothing in the other eye as far as pathology went. I thought that was one of the striking features of this case, because in my experience, and we see a, a moderate amount of Valsalva retinopathy, it's never been uniquely monocular. So do you think there was inherent pathology in the eye that bled, or how, how do you explain that? That's a great question. As far as uh, having just one eye being involved, I, you know, I know with Tursons and everything like that, you think, gosh, both eyes are going to be involved. You know, macroaneurysms typically just one eye where you get all these multi-layer hemorrhages. And for this Valsalva retinopathy, you know, as far as why just one eye, one of life's mysteries, I guess. <laughs> well, I think that made you a little more comfortable not feeling obligated to do something immediately because she had you know, functional vision in her good eye, of course. So she had no depth perception, of course, and she'd lost sort of the peripheral vision in that eye, but she had she had overall a functional eye. So when did you bring her back? I brought her back, you know, several days later, and already the vision the vision improved a little bit. She Her vision came up to about um, 2,200 or so, and some of the blood had started to kind of layer and she had actually started to see a little bit through, you know, subhyaloid hemorrhage, pre-retinal hemorrhage there. So fortunately, no, it appears no new bleeding. So this was a, a singular event. You see some early clearance. What is going to push you to take the next step in management? Well, my hope was that it would just continue to clear on its own. You know, it, over, they have certainly discussed using like a YAG laser to kind of pop these open at times. So that was certainly kind of one of my thought processes if this was not going to clear on its own. But I felt pretty good by the fact that it was clearing and she was symptomatically getting better, both, you know, with her COVID-19 symptoms, as well as just the fact that, you know, that her vision was improving. So a lot of times these can go away on their own with no no management whatsoever. And so that was that that's where I thought we may be headed. And then, and then where did you see a pivot where you realized that wasn't going to be the simple answer for your patient? 
Well, then she came back a couple of days later with a profound drop in vision. And obviously the, the subhyoid hemorrhage had uh, broken through and she had a full-blown vitreous hemorrhage. And the patient herself was very concerned with this big decline in vision. And, you know, you know, I did a confirmatory ultrasound. It didn't see any retinal detachment, nor did I really expect to find one. Uh, but given how nervous the patient was and this profound drop in vision, I felt taking her to the operating room uh, just to get in there and clear it out at that point was going to be best for her. Certainly, we could have waited and, and see if it would have cleared on its own. But with our modern vitrectomy techniques, you know, having a patient wait three months like they used to for you know, diabetic hemorrhages seemed like I'd just be punishing the patient unnecessarily, especially given how how nervous she was. And and that seems to be the trend within our specialty is to move to the operating room earlier, not to wait so much. And I agree with you. I think it's the advances in our our technology platforms and allowing us to to sort of get into this eye in a very stable manner and, and very comfortably remove the blood. Can you take me through the the vitrectomy? How did you approach this eye? Yeah, so I always like once we put in the cannulas, you know, I decided it would be a 25 gauge vitrectomy. And I certainly make sure, actually in all my cases, to visualize that my infusion cannula is well into the vitreous cavity that's not underneath any, you know, not in the choroid or anything like that. So especially in this case, I wanted to make sure that that was, you know, that that was in fact the, the case, which it was. And then, you know, started off and started with clearing out the vitreous hemorrhage uh, using the, you know, wide angle illumination system and wide angle viewing system. And the patient had had a PVD associated from the vitreous hemorrhage that had kind of prompted the kind of the breakthrough bleed and everything like that. And so, you know, once I had cleared all of that out, um, I had noticed that there was definitely some sub ILM hemorrhages, and uh, and that there was a pretty prominent one along the supratemporal arcade, and we also have intraoperative OCT at this operating operating room, so I thought that would be fun to utilize and take a look at, and so kind of confirmed that the superior temporal um, area was in fact a sub ILM hemorrhage, so I went ahead and and opened that up. Uh, just using a soft tip cannula. And then right in the fovea, there was another hemorrhage. Hmm. And I kind of suspected that it was intraretinal. The, the, OC, the intraoperative OCT wasn't definitive. And so I thought to myself, well, I could kind of prove to myself if this is sub-ILM or intraretinal just by going ahead and peeling the ILM. And if it is, uh, in fact, intraretinal, then it's not going to do anything. If it's sub-ILM or if there's a component, then we could go ahead and go ahead and, and kind of make that com you know confirmation. So put in some brilliant blue, let that sit there for about 20 seconds, took that out, and then using a combination of the shark skin forceps and the finesse loop, uh, did a pretty good ILM rexus. It was about three disc diameters. Then once we went ahead and uh, I kind of finished that part, again, did the intraoperative OCT and was able to confirm for sure that it was intraretinal uh, in that in that foveal region. So I was like, okay, we're going to leave that alone. We do not want to, you know, try to get any of that blood out because I don't want to create any damage to the fovea. And then from there, just went ahead and checked the peripheral retina to make sure there are no breaks or tears. 
and yeah, finished the case. Um, no sutures were required and just my typical subconscious injections afterwards. And so she did um, beautifully. So you see a recovery of vision to what level and how quickly? First week, she had just a little bit of, of hemorrhage afterward on, on post-operative day one. But even even then, you know, she went from hand motion and post-operative day one, she was around 2040. By post-operative week six, she'd, are, she'd reached 2020 again. So she was very happy, as was I. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's a good good happy surgeon and a good happy patient. Well, I think you you really demonstrated a reasonable approach to establishing the diagnosis, not moving immediately to surgery, especially with a COVID nineteen positive patient, and then going to surgery when you don't get clearance of the hemorrhage at a reasonable time point, and then having the outcome we had all love, which is twenty twenty and and a very happy patient. So I think that's a beautiful case. And the imagery for this is really quite spectacular. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, a wonderful pleasure. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Sean Adrian on Valsalva retinopathy associated with COVID-19 diagnosis and surgical management. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the JVRD Authors Forum. You can watch and listen to more episodes on the ASRS YouTube channel and on popular podcast directories, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Visit www.asrs.org forward slash JVRD forum on the ASRS website to learn more. See you soon.